But the Trump administration is willfully not acting to ensure that every locality has uh, safe voting procedures, either in person or by mail. Dear friends, uh, it's a pleasure uh, to welcome you at another edition of the Forum 2000 online chat, uh, where we discuss the future of freedom and democracy in these complicated times. Uh, today, it's an honor to welcome to the program Professor Stephen Levitsky, uh, Professor of Government at the Harvard University in the United States. Professor Levitsky, it's a pleasure to welcome you uh, to the online chat. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So, um, Professor Levitsky, um, you have written recently a book, um, How Democracy, How Democracies Die. Um, they, as, as, you, as you explained in the book, they uh, increasingly die or, or are weakened at the hands of elected uh, leaders who uh, gradually undermine the democratic pro processes. Um, do you see the... Uh, the, the the acceleration of these developments in uh, in the connection with the current pandemic? Um, I would say we haven't yet. I think it's it's uh, unfortunately too early to say. Uh, one, we all historically crises, usually security crises, wars, terrorist attacks, have helped to accelerate elected autocrats' consolidation of power. Sometimes these crises are invented. Sometimes these crises are real, but, but crises are, in, in many cases historically, an opportunity for autocratic-minded leaders to, to consolidate power. So a lot of us across the world were very concerned when the pandemic broke out that, that this could be a, a sort of a window for, for autocrats. And it has been in a few cases. Hungary is maybe the most um, obvious case. El Salvador is, uh, I'm a Latin Americanist, so I, I pay particular attention to to Latin America, and El Salvador is the case that is most closely approximated Hungary. And we see a bit of acceleration of hardening in India and Philippines as well. But for the most part, there hasn't been in the first three or four months of the pandemic a widespread uh, collapse of, of democracy. So that's the good news. My, my fear, though, is the medium term. Um, we don't know, and I'm not an economist, we don't know what the medium term economic effects are going to be, but the global economy is obviously in a pretty disastrous place. And this could be a, a fairly prolonged social and economic crisis in many countries. Maybe maybe not so much in Central and Western Europe, we'll see, but certainly in many parts of the world. And one thing we know is that when, uh, when, a, when countries, when particularly new and weak democracies face sustained social and economic crisis, sustained uh, crises of performance, um, that gives rise either to uh, extra constitutional efforts to seize power or elected populists who undermine democratic institutions. And so a worst case scenario is, is Europe in the, in the 30s. My fear is that Latin America, where, a, a place where you've got um, a, a large number of real but fairly new and fairly fragile democracies, could suffer something, uh, something like Europe in the 1930s if they're not able to pull out of the economic crisis. So the short-term consequences, I think, outside of Hungary, El Salvador, and a few other places have not been devastating. 
but I worry a lot about the medium term. Looking perhaps at some positive uh, side of this, uh, have you also noticed or do you, do you think the, the assessment is correct that uh, the pandemic can actually weaken some of the authoritarian or populist leaders around the world? You know, speaking of Latin America, President Bolsonaro, speaking of Russia, President Putin, etc. Absolutely. Uh, crises and poor performance undermine regimes of all kinds. And so I worry a lot about the democracy, the existing democracies in the world. But you're absolutely right that, that the, the crisis is, is very likely to weaken, to undermine support for uh, authoritarian governments in many parts of the world and, and potentially to weaken them. And I think you're right as well that, that sort of populist authoritarian governments or populist governments with authoritarian instincts like Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, Trump in the United States, maybe Erdogan in, in Turkey have performed uh, really quite poorly in response to the crisis. And that's going to, I think, accelerate their weakening. But Bolsonaro is weaker today than he was six months ago. Trump is weaker today than he was six months ago. Six months ago, I would have bet uh, that Trump would, would get re-election. And I think these, these days it seems much less likely. So it, uh, crisis works in two directions. It undermines democracies, but it also undermines authoritarian regimes. Speaking of President Trump, uh, you're known as, as his critic. In fact, in your book, uh, you, you take uh, the, the, the President Trump's um, administration as one of the sort of cases, one of the bad examples of uh, of uh, undermining democracy. Uh, what is your assessment of the of the pre-electoral um, uh, situation of democracy in the U.S. coming to the November elections? Well, there's a lot to worry about, and there's a lot to um, to uh, also give us hope. I mean, the United, U.S. democracy is is hard to kill. We have an even though there's a lot to worry about, even though any time you elect as a president or prime minister someone with uh, without a firm commitment to democratic institutions and to the rule of law, you are at risk. So the United U.S. democracy has been at risk since the day Trump took office. Um, but it has some pretty strong democratic antibodies. Our institutions are pretty strong. The, um, the, the civil servants, the officials who work within state institutions are, uh, are, are um, highly professionalized, pretty committed, uh, have a lot of resources and are fighting back. So there's no question that Trump uh, is following the, the kind of playbook that we saw, uh, I guess, most brilliantly in Hungary. But in in, uh, in in different ways in places like Russia and Turkey and Venezuela, where uh, elected governments purge and pack key state institutions, particularly law enforcement institutions, and then use those institutions as a shield to allow uh, to give themselves impunity um, and, and allow themselves to to carry out abuse. But particularly to use those institutions as weapons against rivals and, and opponents. And um, that and Trump has tried to do that from the beginning of his presidency, particularly with um, the, um, the Justice Department, uh, also the FBI, many, many other state agencies. But he's faced a lot of pushback. And um, set, you know, eight years of Trump will be much more devastating for these institutions than four years of, of Trump. Um, and the, the civil servants don't always win the fights, but they're slowing the process of democratic erosion. The other thing we have in the United States that's different from Hungary, that's different from uh, Russia or Venezuela, is a robust opposition. Uh, and that comes in the form of the Democratic Party, which has a lot of resources, which is well-organized, 
which is electorally viable, but it also comes from a range of, of civic associations, um, some highly organized, uh, some loosely organized. And the protest movement we see today is, is, is a reflection of that. I mean, there is a pretty significant societal pushback against Trump. So there are a number of things that ail American democracy. Most importantly, extreme partisan polarization that's rooted in racial and cultural division. That's not going to be easy to overcome. Even if Trump loses the election, that's going to threaten our democracy. But Trump is, is the, the prospects or the likelihood that Trump will uh, consolidate uh, an autocratic regime anywhere like, say, Hungary, Turkey, Russia. Um, I think he can do a lot of damage. I think the likelihood of autocracy is still pretty low. You're speaking about the, the, the political polarization or even social polarization in the U.S. Um, and we see that. We see that both in the Republican Party, which has uh, certainly adjusted a lot to President Trump's policies and, and despite its initial opposition uh, to his nomination and, and candidacy, I mean, it has basically sort of gone silent afterwards and it's it's basically following President Trump wherever wherever he goes with some exceptions and then the, the exceptions may be growing lately. But we see a similar development or similar, I mean, we see a development in the Democratic Party as well. I mean, there has been this move to the to the left and, and some of the left is, is fairly extreme, I think, on the U.S. political spectrum. Aren't you afraid that that the U.S. institutions, at least these two important institutions, the main the two main parties, have been permanently changed and there may be some something permanently different in the U.S. politics? Well, I'll, I'm going to take issue with, with some of the things you just said. Um, it's So one, one thing that has been worse than... Daniel and I anticipated when we wrote our book has been the Trumpization of the Republican Party. Um, so not only has the Republican Party moved, not necessarily to the right, it's moved in an ethno-nationalist direction. It's moved in an illiberal direction. So we, it was pretty right-wing under Reagan, but it was a much more liberal right than it is now. So it's moved in an ethno-nationalist direction. And the, the one thing we did not anticipate was the total and rapid Trumpification of the party, as you pointed out. There is really no serious resistance uh, to Trump, and there won't be until he loses. Um, the Democratic Party, I, I would take issue with. The Democratic Party is a very heterogeneous party. It has always been a heterogeneous party. Um, it includes uh, uh, everything from, from uh, upper-middle-class suburban whites to left-leaning urban intellectuals to every minority group in, in the country, in effect. And that makes the party um, less coherent than the Republicans. It makes it, it, it kind of messy, always in some level of internal conflict and debate. But it also makes the party quite pragmatic and ultimately, at the end of the day, fairly moderate. So, yes, young people, young Democrats are moving to the left. Uh, urban, particularly urban, young urban uh, college educated Democrats are moving to the left. Uh, but that's part of the party. And there's and it and it will push the party programmatically to the left. Um, not a shocker, given that the party moved programmatically quite a bit to the right, or to this, it became a center, maybe even slightly center right party under Bill Clinton in the 1990s. 
So it moved dramatically to the right from the 70s to the 90s. And now it's, it's tacking back leftward, particularly on social and racial issues. The party is moving to the left on issues of racial equality. Now, does, um, do, does, a, does, does widespread white support or Democratic Party support for an agenda of civil rights um, mean dangerous radicalization? Uh, I don't think so. Does support for gay rights mean, mean uh, dangerous radicalization? No, it's, 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 a, it's basically a social liberalization. Uh, the party is becoming more socially liberal as the Republican Party becomes more illiberal. So there's a, a liberal, illiberal divide between the two parties that I don't think it makes the Democrats a particularly dangerous party. Uh, the, who, won the, who, who runs the party? Charles Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in the legislature, two uh, establishment moderates. Who won the nomination uh, for the presidency? Joe Biden, historically a centrist within the party. So um, yes, there's a left wing to the Democratic Party. To be honest, there's always been a left wing to the Democratic Party. I think generational change will push the party a bit to the left, but there's no evidence that the party is uh, becoming particularly radical. And there's certainly no evidence that the party is becoming a, a threat to liberal democratic institutions. Now, there's the one thing that there is to worry about is that uh, behave, in a two-party system in particular, behavior that violates democratic norms on one side very often triggers a kind of tit-for-tat response. Um, when, when uh, For example, when the Republicans effectively stole a Supreme Court seat in 2016, there was a lot of push among left of center activists to retaliate, to do something uh, um, of equal measure in response, because the argument goes, and it makes sense to people, that if you get in a boxing ring with a bully with one hand tied behind your back and you continue to play by democratic norms, you're going to get the crap beaten out of you, right? You have to fight back. And there's an argument being made in progressive circles that Democrats have to fight like Republicans. Um, and if that goes too far, if there's, uh, if there's too much retaliation, it, it does run the risk of escalating an erosion of democratic norms uh, and escalating the politicization of institutions, which can have really negative consequences. The evidence for that is not that great. There's a push within the party. But if you look at the Democratic Party leadership, whether it's Obama or Biden or the legislative leadership, they have continued to adhere to democratic norms. So I'm I'm that I'm losing sleep over a lot of things, but not that one yet. So what what are you losing your sleep most uh, over? The election. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot um, there's a lot to worry about in this election. Um, U.S. does not because we don't have much of a history of or at least a recent history of, of electoral fraud. The United States has not created 21st century electoral institutions. We don't have a powerful electoral authority like many new democracies have. Um, we, uh, we have very decentralized elections with, in many cases, basically 19th century technologies um, led by local, uh, run by volunteers, led by local partisan officials. Um, it, in a system where there is no fraud, and no ambiguity, and, and the results are not that close, it works fine. It did throughout the 20th century in the United States. But um, we're not built to deal with electoral crises. And um, 
American elections, there are two things going on now. One is American elections are very close. Every election, every national election is close to a tie. And that may not happen now because Trump is in, is in bad shape. But if you go back six months or even three months, um, the election was going to be tied. And it was going to um, probably come down to two or three or four states that might be so close that there is a, um, a, a recall, uh, excuse me, a recount of the votes. Uh, as we saw in 2000 in, in the state of Florida, there's often disagreement between the two parties over the procedures of the recount, about how to do the recount. Um, but the, our parties are much, much, much more polarized than they were in 2000. The courts, the Supreme Court is much less legitimate than it was when it intervened to, to, to give Bush the presidency in 2000. And of course, uh, the differences between Al Gore, who in a very statesman-like way accepted defeat, despite the fact that it was a very contested election, Donald Trump will never do that. Donald Trump is gonna probably claim fraud no matter what. So if, it's a, if, if Donald Trump loses by seven points and claims fraud, it won't be a problem. Um, eventually people will ignore him. But if it's a tie election and there's contestation or disagreement over the procedures of the recount and Donald Trump claims fraud, Fox News will line up behind him. The Republicans will line up behind him. 45% of the country will, uh, will believe him or 40 or 45%. And that could lead to the biggest electoral crisis since 1876. Yeah, and throw on top of that, the fact that the United States has not gotten control of the, of the coronavirus outbreak. And it, there's a good chance that um, the infection rate will be higher in the late fall than it is today. And there may be parts of the country where, uh, where the, the, the health, public health situation is terrible. We rely on volunteer elderly people, retirees to run our elections. They're the, obviously the most high risk individuals. They probably will opt not to work. Um, many, many voters will, uh, will be afraid to go vote in person. Uh, because the volunteers are not working, they'll have to reduce the number of polling places, which means very long lines, which increases the public health risk. Now, all of this can be dealt with, with planning, with investment of time and money. But the Trump administration is willfully not acting to ensure that every locality has uh, safe voting procedures, either in person or by mail. Some states have taken care of it, but there are many places in the country that are not equipped to deal with a, an election in the middle of a pandemic. And so it's possible, it's entirely possible that, um, that we will face an election in which parts of the country, things are completely chaotic and turnout plunges. And I think, quite frankly, that's what Trump wants, right? If losing in the polls, there's nothing better for him because he can't cancel the elections. He can't postpone the election. He can't outright steal the election. This is not Russia. Um, but he can, through neglect, through willful malign neglect, allow a chaotic, low turnout election in which maybe he pulls off a victory. That's what keeps me awake. So we have been speaking about the, some of the challenges that U.S. democracy is facing. You as a political scientist, did you have, if you had to 
name one or two things that you would fix and 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 uh, propose how to fix them what would what would, what would they be what would these two things be in the, in the united states yeah or in the in the united states well i think one step that that's uh that's obvious and very important is uh, elimination of the electoral college the electoral college has become a uh, a counter majoritarian institution and the way that our parties are lined up um, with the Republicans becoming an entirely rural party, like many right-wing parties in Europe, and the Democrats becoming an urban party, the Electoral College is now, not through the fault of the Republicans, but it now happens to be really quite overwhelmingly biased in favor of the Republican Party. And so it's very possible that Trump loses the presidential election again in 2020 by four, five, maybe even six points, and still wins in the Electoral College. That will be a terrible blow to the legitimacy of our, of our democracy. The other thing I would do is take a, a, a series of national steps to make it far easier for citizens to register to vote and to vote. It is currently very difficult uh, to, to register and to vote in the United States compared to other countries, particularly in Western Europe. And, uh, and it's getting harder in many states. Republicans are making it harder to register to vote in many states across the country. And uh, so I would be in favor of automatic registration, making election day a holiday or a Sunday, um, and uh, uh, taking steps to ensure that, that voters have easy access to polling places across the country. Turnout in elections in, in a democracy should be on the order of 70 to 80 percent, not 50 or 55 percent, like, like in the U.S. And I think, um, given the polarization in this country, given that, what in 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 the the argument that we make in our book, and that I continue to believe, is that what's fundamentally driving the the threat to American democracy is uh, a really difficult process we're going through, in which what used to be a dominant ethnic majority, white Christians used to be an electorally dominant, socially dominant majority in this country. That group is losing its majority. We are becoming, a, a, uh, inevitably, a multi-ethnic and multicultural democracy. And, but losing one's electoral majority and losing one's dominant social status, economic status, political status, um, is a very, very threatening thing. And that is essentially what drives the radicalization of the Republican Base. Um, they're not a, a, a large majority of the country, but they're situated in states, the so-called red states in the United States, that have a lot of power in the Senate and the, and the Electoral College. And it, the threat is, because turnout is low, that they could actually um, sustain some level of minority rule. Um, again, winning the presidency without winning the Electoral College, controlling the Senate without actually winning the most votes in the Senate controlling the Supreme Court because they control the Senate, which is a counter institution. The best way to combat that is, is, is increasing turnout to healthier levels, making it much easier to, for all Americans to vote. With 70, 75% turnout, we would um, accelerate this transition and allow what's essentially a diffuse but clear, but, but, but clear majority of urban cosmopolitans to, to, to win. Professor Lavinsky, it has been a great pleasure speaking to you. 
Thank you so much and uh, all the best to Boston. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye.